0: Now welcoming on recurring guest, Brian Cole, for the third time.
1: Welcome back to Canon Calls. It's great to be here with you, Jacob, and the Canon Calls crew.
0: <laughs> when you say it like
1: that, it makes it sound rude. <laughs>
0: rude? <laughs> and when your voice want. inflects
1: that no, way. No, I meant that genuinely and happily to be on for the third time. On to who we're really
0: excited about, brand new to the show, Rendell Carolino. Sales manager slash marketing manager of Canon Press. The nice thing about Canon Calls, it's a nice little entryway into who exactly works at Canon Press. Yeah, Introducing the in. characters. Ren, thanks for coming. Long time listener. <laughs> First time caller. <laughs> First, time call. First time caller. First time caller. Ren and I shared a room for five years of, my, of our lives. So this is a, this is a, very, a great day in Canon Calls a history of yeah, sorts.
2: Yeah, long time listener of Jake. And just <laughs> far exceeding the canon calls.
1: Yeah. Don't you you kinda have That's to true. explain, right? Well, no. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what are you guys brothers? <laughs> uh
0: so the reason I have both Brian on and Ren on is today's topic I think intersects with your interests at varying degrees, but also, Brian, maybe a professional in a professional sense. We're gonna be essentially talking about books on books.
1: Yes, definitely. And so as editorial department meets marketing side, we at Canon are pretty excited about books about books.
0: Books about books. These range from like titles on Canon Plus, which mm-hmm. are things like Live Like an Arnion, recently begotten by us from, Read. from Joe Rigney.
1: <laughs> Read by Joe Rigney himself. Uh, in the House of Tom
0: Bombadil, which is brand new. So Chris Wiley talking about how Tom Bombadil functions in The Lord of the Rings. Uh, also, Monsters from the Id from me, Michael Jones, which is essentially him. I actually want to spend a little time on that one. He's doing all kinds of things, literary criticism, social criticism, historical criticism. He's doing all those things. And Brian, you're in the middle of that one. So I wanted your take on that. What I Learned in Narnia by Doug. And then the rest, things that are not yet on Can Plus that are coming are several Peter Lighthart titles, Miniatures and Morals, which is his stuff on Jane Austen. Uh, Sent to Love, his Dante book on divine comedy, and I think also medieval stuff. Yeah. Um, and then Brightest Heaven of Invention, which is uh, his his take on Shakespeare. Yeah. Uh,
1: and so, I mean, we, we have a lot of books along with that. Uh, Here is the City of Man's another one. Yes. Um, good catch. And But but to be honest, I think hopefully we can get this dialogue into a reason of why books about books is actually a bit of a controversial topic, but I guess we'll save that. Yeah. We'll save and if, that for yeah, later.
0: Anything the stakes are usually high on these kinds of things. It can be very edifying. It can also be very, also, we should maybe mention Stories or Soul Food Host, which could come into play
1: here. Oh, yeah, definitely. We we, we like stories and we think stories have meaning and that itself is what's controversial uh, okay. in, in today's culture.
0: So a lot on the professional side for Brian, personal interests. Is this, do you find yourself reading <laughs> books on books often?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think a good essay that helps you to, I, te- I teach NSA freshmen as listeners of Canon Calls will know, And uh, I really push them to try to explain in papers, can you show me something about a book that you love that I've not seen before? And that kind of, in my mind, is the goal of literary criticism. It's what those books by Lightheart and Wilson and Rigney and E. Michael Jones, they do that. It's very exciting when you read a book and you say, or Lord of the Rings, and you've always kind of wondered about Bombadil, and then all of a sudden someone strings it all together, puts all the, all the pearls on the chain, and all of a sudden I get it, and I'm excited to go back to the Lord of the Rings with new eyes.
0: Good. And then, Ren, this is probably more personal. And I mean, do you find yourself, this more personal interest is why I have you on. This is something I know, since I've known you, we've been very interested
2: about. Do you find this in your job as well? Yeah, I know that personally, I was, you know, having gone to school with you at Bethlehem College and Seminary where Piper was, it was all theology. And that was not an issue where I felt like I had to be told to read theology books. But I definitely at the time didn't feel like I had to read literature. And so, you know, took a major against my natural inclinations, did stuff with Joe Rigney, and he kind of turned us to a lot of lit on lit and books on books, yep. and uh, Rene Girard was huge for that yep. uh, in his theater of envy, where we're finding out what is the engine underneath Shakespeare, and that kind of just set me off for appreciating what literary criticism can do. Uh, the type that uh, literary criticism that you know I found not only like explain something I didn't understand before, but like Brian was saying, like show me something that's not that I I never would have come to it even if you had explained it to me. Yep. And he also had the edge of being the provocateur who just was always contramundum, saying something that, uh, you know, a very important tr- uh, truth that most people would disagree with. It's um, always cool to be with a guy who's got his hat backwards against the world. Yeah. Yeah. So if I have that. That's my personal interest in in, yeah. the, in this Books on Books. And I feel like a lot of our authors, you know, Doug's what I learned at Narnia, does a great job of just showing me all the Narnian corners that I don't really know and you e. Michael Jones monsters from the id and talking about the rise of the horror genre and all the very very uh un- the, the underbelly of the literary world like that sort of thing fits as far as the provocateur but
0: before we move on when we say literary criticism or we've said you know I I in my personal time personal reading I like reading literary criticism um we don't but I think like the best literary criticism is usually about the best books and the best authors. They're trying to show you what the author is up to, and sometimes maybe a little bit further than maybe the author even knew. So something like uh, one that's big and we've talked about on Canon Calls is Ward's Planet Narnia. So books like that. So it's it's, uh, just to be clear on literary criticism is hopefully just showing you what literature does. Like this is what great literature is up to and doing and Right. So and forth.
1: and literary criticism is a little bit of a, a, a dirty word, I think. Yeah. Because it sounds really boring and has been used to do terrible things. Right. <laughs> Especially yeah. in the past, whatever, fifty years. So that's right. why I, I like that you called it books on books because we're we're dodging the whole yes. literary criticism. Yes, yes, that, yes. You have to say it in that sort of that snooty yes. voice. You've got to straighten um, up, shoulders yep. back. Yep. Or maybe slump because we're academics if we're yes. doing literary criticism.
0: Right. And so actually I hadn't thought about it, but the assignment that you've given the freshmen for their paper this term was essentially this.
1: Yep. Right. And I call I call it a, a literary research paper because I don't need them thinking about the different critical schools that sure. they jump into. But I, I told them, hey, you have to come up with a question from a work of fiction, any work of fiction from, you know, uh, we're talking from the Iliad all the way up to modern times. Come up with a question about it and research the answer and then write me a paper. Yep. Showing me what that answer is. And then of course they Jake's you spent a bunch of time with them in a workshop trying to get them to ask a question that is not like, hey, what color is Tom Bombadil's hat? Right. Because then you say yellow and they're done. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Or is it blue? Yellow with or is it yellow blue boots. with yellow boots? Yellow boots. Yep. Yellow boots. What color are his boots? My bad.
0: Right. So it's something like, so for example And maybe we could jump in. So Chris Wiley's brand new book, which I've had him on the podcast to talk about, which is In the House of Tom Bombadil. And the question that would last a book, even though it's not a super long book, but the question he's asking is, what is Tom Bombadil even doing? In this story,
1: right? Because anyone who's read the Lord of the Rings has thought, "Wow, that was a weird little hiatus." Is that just someone who was there to get them saved out of the willow tree? Like, right. did is it a Deus Ex Machina? Yeah, that Tolkien added in, and then and then not only did it save him out of the willow tree, but then he needed the same thing to save him from the barrel White. You know, right. so there's a lot of questions where you think.
0: So just Hold moving on. the plot along. Yeah, is this, this a, is
1: this a random character, of like Bill Fernie style, that doesn't right. matter? And then, but he spends way too much. He's got a backstory. He's got songs. He's got Tolkien's written about him actually. Yeah. Um. So there's there's a bunch of stuff there, and so it's great topic for a literary paper. Later on in the the council, it's very funny when they're like, "By the way, can't we
0: just like give this to? Can we just give the ring to Tom <laughs> oh, Bombadil yeah. and he could just end it?" Uh so yeah, there's there's clearly stuff there and then he wants to say like what is he doing? Is it edifying? Is it helpful? Or is he is Tolkien sloppy like the other the opposite,
2: if it's not any of those things, then it's very sloppy work. And and that's where like the books on books are very, very helpful when all the weird, unexplainable, rough edges of a book actually end up being sculpted marble or something that was a centerpiece and for him it would be in Chris Wiley's book, it would be an alternative to power that wasn't coercive. Um, it was glad. It was the sort of thing that couldn't be tempted by authority over others. And it could open up trees and fight back Barrow-whites. And it otherwise, you, you know, without that episode, uh, you would just discard it as an odd song, a break into Silly you know, song.
0: commercial. <laughs> like, yes, like almost <laughs> very Lear-like silliness, which is not like Tolkien at all.
1: Yeah, and I would leave you with the question of the hippies, right? Uh, If power is wicked, you can't have power. Right. Right. And then all of a sudden, all the hippies realize they kind of need power in order to end COVID.
0: Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah, it is. And yeah, there's plenty that Tolkien does where it, it is a great one big push of just drop the power, drop the coercive thing. But is there, here is like one bright, pun intended, of someone with a lot of authority who's not using it to like essentially enslave.
1: Right. And it flows from, of course, the dominion mandate and what does it look like to have the right kind of power? And so, so those, these are all questions. Right. But I think it's important to notice that all of the questions we ask, this is something that's pretty key. All the questions we ask have to do with what Tolkien is doing in the text, right? right. So you, you, you look at Lord of the Rings as the story and you say, what's the point of this here? Yep. These are not things that we felt. While reading Tolkien, they're not things that you could read into Tolkien. Right. And, and that, what we're doing right now is formal literary criticism, which we don't even have to call it that. It's just, we assume that texts exist with truth in them. And that assumption right now has been absolutely thrown out. Yes. Yeah, so do you uh, want to the,
0: talk a little bit about that? You recently gave a lecture for New Saint Andrews.
1: Yeah. One class I taught for the Camperdown Writer's Kiln, the MFA, is on literary criticism. And we've kind of been exploring that change. And if you don't mind me ranting for a little bit, I got pretty excited (laughs) because I realized all of a sudden all the problems that we have right now are directly connected to this little move that happened in literary criticism that moved us from formal criticism, which is where you look at the text and find meaning, to all of a sudden where meaning doesn't exist anymore. So which problems are you referring to? Well, I'm talking about... Okay, so this, like all good theses started with a question. And my question was, how could some of my classmates come to such different radical interpretations of the same books that I was reading that are clearly not based on the text? So that was a question I thought. This is also Brian shooing in <laughs> this time at Oxford. Uh, at Oxford, really? when I was studying literary <laughs> criticism. <laughs> yeah.
0: So you had classmates that you're, yeah, you're so, saying they came up with like crazy, conclusions.
1: terrible ideas. And it was even sometimes about fellow classmates work where they would say, I think you're your thing means this and I would say what it clearly does not mean that and so basically this is what happened so and it's pretty simple I'll, I'll try to do it fast and, and if I need to do more you can ask but it, I don't want to bore everyone <laughs> so, so we all assume uh, Plato onward up until you know the early 19 or the 1900s or so that when you look at a book you're studying something and there's meaning inherent in the book but what happened is the structuralists are scientists who wanted to approach language and understand where meaning comes from. Yeah. Um, this is like uh sassur. And so guys like that said, Hey, look, the only reason we actually know what a word means is because there are linguistic basically frameworks and we distinguish them with each other. So there's no actual tie in of real meaning. Say, if you took the word stop sign and the word sunglasses, those are just structural things that we have learned to understand that equate, one equates with the red octagon and the other one equates with sunglasses, okay? But, but no, notice they still haven't changed the meaning of those words. They're just saying, hey, there's actually nothing that connects stop signs themselves with anything true behind them. It's just linguistic structure.
0: So whereas like Plato would have said, no, no, there is a red octagon.
1: Yeah, right. a form.
0: There is a form which is <clears throat> you know kind of nice Right. Push against them. It's like there is something that actually exists called stop sign. Right. That all of our stop signs are are sort of imaging. Yep. And they're saying they came along in response to that and said
1: no. No. Basically because we could have been in a different culture where there is not that same understanding. But what's key, I'm not arguing for Platonism right now, but I am arguing that there is meaning behind Contrasted our words. Though with them. They're Absolutely. They're saying like
0: there is no such thing as a form. Yeah. This is all relative based on your cultural upbringing.
1: Right, right, absolutely. And what's so interesting about this is that allowed them to have the exact same interpretation of a text like Lord of the Rings, but at the same time to say, okay, but we don't actually know that that's what the text itself says, it's just the structures that we come to the text that help us interpret it. So okay. they didn't change anything, but they just broke so they allowed for the like
0: general interpretation that comes from it. But then they also permitted or it's at least total free game for feminists to pick it up. And say, but if we actually read this within the, like, heritage of feminism.
1: And the first guys weren't doing that. They were just doing this little break where they basically said, hey, up till now, we've assumed that meaning and truth is stuck on top of the book. Right. right? It's part of the book.
0: It's inherent in the book.
1: Yeah, inherent in the book. And they're saying, ah, just a little crack. And all of a sudden they've broken what the text means from truth. And because they hated God and wanted to get rid of objectivity is functionally what was going on
2: now you can see buddhism in the gospels or narnia and just like have any free for all like who are you inserted into the text isn't that nice
1: yeah absolutely and and that actually is what the deconstructionists did which is the final step so it moved from formal criticism to structuralism which allowed you to have the same meanings it yep. just kind of said well your meanings culturally conditioned and that allowed deconstructionists to say well if meaning is culturally conditioned then what if we did the opposite So a classic postmodern, we're big fans of Hamlet, a classic postmodern take on Hamlet is Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, the play by Tom Stoppard. And in that play, that's also a really funny movie, but in that, the the main idea is that, hey, structuralists reduce everything down to binaries, and that's how we understand things. It's this and not this because it's how we've been conditioned as a kid. So all you have to do to make a really interesting postmodern deconstructionist work is flip a binary that is a key tension in a text and what, stopper does in that play is flip drama and reality so we all read hamlet and assume what's going on on stage is the real thing what's behind the stage is not the real thing and he says hey but what if we flip it around and what's going on behind the stage is real and the play itself is the thing that's fake and doesn't have any meaning
0: right so we're riffing off the plays the thing Mm -hmm. scene could you talk a little bit more about that one so it lands for well, you?
1: Well, I mean, I think it's even, it's even bigger than that. It's that when we watch a play, we assume, when you sit down and watch Hamlet happening, you assume we have this suspension of disbelief that, that Hamlet and all the actions taking place are the thing that's real. And when the actors go off stage, they're no longer part of the real thing that we're watching. Right. But Rosencrantz and Guildenstern flips it and says, okay, let's pretend that the play is what's fake. Right. And, and everything backstage and what they do in between their scenes is what's real. And those two guys are trying to figure out what does this even mean? Yes. Is there any meaning to life? Like what is happening? Right. And and so f- I think I can make this even clearer because that is kind of, that's the technical genesis yeah. of what happened. But really the only difference is between textual criticism and reader criticism. So if it's a reader who is saying, no, no, I take my meaning and or, ins- or you take your meaning and apply it to the text, we're postmodern. That's after the structuralists. If we say, no, no, the work has meaning regardless of what you think, Right. that's when we are doing true Christian classical philosophy.
0: You could be wrong about the text because it has a meaning. And like, if you missed it, you'd be wrong.
1: Absolutely. And that's where I kept running into problems with classmates who would say things like, well, I think... That that was how they'd say everything. I would yeah. say, Oh no, that's not what that means and they'd say, Well and then they yeah. they qualify it with that's just your interpretation. Or but if but you do realize that the Irish were super mistreated by the English. And I'm like, sorry, sorry, what we're talking about? Yeah. We're talking about an Irish poem, not about the history of Ireland. Right. Which granted they were mistreated. <laughs> you mentioned that we have a lot
0: of problems. This is sort of in some sense like a genesis of problems. Do you only mean literary problems or do you see this being
1: well as soon as you it's as soon as you divorce meaning from what's actually going on then that affects Disney and it yeah. affects the Bible it right. affects whatever you want right. and it's actually kind of a fun test to take classic Disney movies and see what happens if you dis- deconstruct them just flip th- so what you do is you've identify the primary tension flip it and see if see what happens with the story and one of my favorite ones is The Little Mermaid to do. Because if you notice The Little Mermaid, the whole story of The Little Mermaid is this whole idea of under, the primary tension is underwater, bad, on land, good. Yeah. Right? And what you find out is that actually the people who wrote The Little Mermaid already flipped it from the original fable. Because they're in the original fable, she gets out of the water and dies. Okay. And, and so Disney says, oh, let's flip that. So the, the original binary is stay in your spot yeah like you should be in the ocean, you're a mermaid stations, hierarchies, yeah. yep, yeah, and what they do is they say, no, no, let's flip it so that the water's now bad and on land is good, and that's from everything the little mermaid flows, sure, from that, which and I this feel is like something
0: very obvious why anybody would want to attack stations, hierarchies, yep. et cetera
1: yep and and you can take i'm I'm relying on some some of the ideas that came from our our class when we talked about this here, but you can take really any of these. Pocahontas for example and flip it or find out what these bin these binaries and, and then it, the part of the reason I'm I'm referencing Disney and using the word binary is we've applied it to sexuality the same thing now there's not actually any implicit sexuality yep. it's just structurally contrived yes uh there's no theology there's no god there's no science anyways now my rant is over
2: <laughs> no and that that honestly that trickles down into how you end up talking to your waiter <laughs> Or retweeting somebody and adding your comment and having no charity whatsoever and understanding where they're coming from. And it's probably, it would have been a great experiment to see what would those deconstructionalists, how do they tip their waiters? <laughs> like right. what kind of service did those people get in the restaurant? How do they understand their children? What, you know, do they continue talking after long periods of time? Or are they just on separate ways? Cause who knows? There's no true actual relationship going on there that.
0: It does Definitely seem like the ultimate folly, right? Like when they have kids and they say, hey, please go clean your room. I'm sure they would never allow a structuralist or, or a post-structuralist deconstruction interpretation from their child. <laughs>
2: yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. So if if we're playing the structuralist game, the kid's like, what is clean? Sure. You know? <laughs> can we discuss <laughs> what, this can we, What does clean yeah. mean? Uh, does clean mean something that makes me comfortable? Because if so... My room is clean. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> right. Or it's just, yeah, when you say, go clean your room, are you saying the
0: opposite? you know Exactly. Like, you know, and that's
1: where um, I think part of the reason that deconstruction of texts got the hold that it did is at first when Derrida or Foucault, I don't remember which of them. I haven't read them, so don't think that I know them. Yeah, Same bad guys. But uh, Foucault and Derrida said, is not that this is a method of literary criticism, but this is just a way of reading. And so they treat it as like this sort of silly game that they'd play where they just say, well, what happens if we just look for ways in which the text contradicts itself? Right. And so, I mean, I mean, tension has always been a part of literary criticism. You look for what that's what makes a novel hold together is that there are contrasting and warring desires. Sure. But the deconstructionists and the postmoderns take those tensions as sort of this Freudian desire to have something else that contradicts itself.
0: Yes. So these are the sort of the dark corners of what we were saying. Yes, yeah, so I apologize. Very so I... <laughs> criticism. And often when I'm trying to recommend books on books, you kind of want to steer clear of that. But the thing about it is you're, you want to just see better. I think I have mentioned this on the very last episode with Rachel. We were talking about people that traffic in metaphor, like good authors, good poets, prose writers are very good at seeing. And so I want to be more like them. And so good literary critics or good people that are writing what they've benefited from books, books on books, they're helping me develop that sense of sight or develop that sense of uh, whether they're tropes or or what have you.
1: Yeah, that's great. I think it's worth noting that the opposite of what you just said is what has been taught in universities for the past (laughs) 70 years. Right. Uh, Which is kind of sad too. So that's part of the reason why I say, this explains everything. Yeah. So when you meet somebody who has the wrong take and cannot see it. Right. And in fact, can't even argue with you about whether the take is wrong or right. Right. It all is related to the fact that they've divorced themselves from objective meaning. Right. And objective meaning, you know, they've somehow cut themselves out of the fabric of reality and they're just floating.
0: Yes. Right. And this can be seen when they do little exercises about, what does this fable mean or what they happened? don't have a clue. Right.
1: It's they get it they they can still do interesting reading sometimes, but the point is when they do they're borrowing the tools of a generation that came before them. And when they miss and they read power dynamics as the only interesting thing, yeah. then they're marxist reading and they're that's reader response, not yep. text based. Yeah. Um you know, when they read gender into it, that's that's feminist. When they read sexual identity into it, that's freudian, although he's fallen out of favor too. So, um, you can do it with any reader response. If, if, if it's you that decides what the text means, then the interpretation of a text is multitude. If it, the text is a thing and God knows what it means, then it is somehow part of the fabric of reality. And we can pin your opinion to the wall and say, no, that actually does not match. Right or wrong. Yeah. Right or wrong.
0: Ren, where do you go for like, if you just want to recommend this to family or friends? Where do you, what do you recommend?
2: I think we brought up Planet Narnia earlier, and for the most part, the guys who do this really well will uh, also be writing for uh, not just the Academy, but they'll be writing in such a way that most people can pick it up. So I think Michael Ward's Narnia Code yeah. is a great way for uh, some of my, uh, my friends and family to pick it up. Just a really, really easy read on what is the weather the plan- the assumptions the beliefs the whole planetary system behind narnia so i typically go to recommend that first if people like narnia
0: or that sort yeah what do you feel like you've been most helped by in terms of lit crit quote unquote what do you love about it you do read would you say you read it in your spare time like these are things you enjoy trafficking in just personally yeah is that just cuz you're a huge nerd or or what
2: <laughs> i think i think the thing that well definitely a nerd but the uh, we've brought it up a couple of times here how, like, if you don't have the ability to read someone on their own terms, get to capital T truth, share that with you and the author, and carry that with you from your day to day lives, like, you don't have the basic abilities of love, of patience, of understanding. You can't be a good Christian without these sorts of things. And the authors who do books on books, I find them to, like, they're helping me understand another fun, like, different human being than I am. So when I turn to my wife or my 2-year-old, like that's not so hard and he doesn't even speak great English. And so, like I think that uh like that Christian ability I find really great in guys like uh, you know, well well sometimes the books on books will be a little poem on books, a little poem on another author and he's referencing something else. So, you know, I've gotten recommendations from you before of Robert Frost who wrote this poem called Birches and he's Directly responding to Percy Shelley's Prometheus, and then Richard Wilbur will kind of go, you know, tap into that. And now he's responding to Frost. He's responding to Percy Shelley, and he's responding to modern America at the time. And both men who have extreme patience with the sorts of guys who sleep with sixteen-year-olds. Sure, and (laughs) and and, and, Shelley Shelley to clear up uh, Wilbur and 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 Frost. (laughs) Yeah, not Frost. And not excusing it at all, but uh, understanding it, condemning it, guiding it, and repackaging it for uh, a whole new generation who may not even know who Prometheus was or Percy Shelley was. So I I find recommendations from you, uh, authors we've read in the past, uh, Michael Ward, that's Yeah. Brian,
0: you're going through, uh, so we have recently acquired E. Michael Jones, Monsters from the Id, and this is something I have loved for a very long time. Which Doug? I think I got from a Ask Doug like eight years ago, and it was sort of just like, "What is horror? What is it up to?" That kind of thing. Which I feel like most people don't know what's happening, or or you know, that's Definitely not. not. A I get I get thing.
1: I get a bunch of freshman papers every year that are trying to answer that question. Sure.
0: So as you go through, I mean, you're going through this now. What's that like? Or what's he up to? Like, is
1: this? <laughs> well, I actually. Not to flatter Jake too much, but I also heard about this from Jacob on Canon Calls it's when, oh, you, nice. when yes. you interviewed yes. EMJ. And it's definitely more of a mature conversation because Horde's directly about how the Enlightenment leads to sexuality, which leads to death. Right, so so you just, find those to be adult themes. Yeah, you're saying. yeah, saying it, and especially as uh, saying it like that, we're fine. Um, that's in James, as e. Michael Jones points out, the right. book of James. Desire gives birth to death. You yeah. know, but e- AMJ gets into all the details of sure. the romantics and how exactly the French Revolution is the perfect apotheosis of yeah. <laughs> this this perfect embodiment of all the themes of enlightenment. Uh, instead of producing this amazing civilization where people could live out their desires and instead conflated passion and reason and ended up just in blood on the streets and everybody trying to justify it. And in fact, the big part of why we are now able to, to get behind those themes again is because we have managed to get rid of the children through abortion. And back then they couldn't. Right. And so that, that, like I said, that's a dark theme, but he says that's, you have to have horror once you get rid of God. Um, and you have to have horror once you try to connect with passion.
2: Jake is a uh,
1: this is a podcast on yeah.
2: Authors who also do books on books or yeah. books. Where are you how do you typically find yourself from one book to another? Do you typically go from you know, the guys who are already writing that sort of thing, already going to the lit crits or are you starting from a book you like and surfing in the bibliography? How's that
0: I think yeah, the bibliography surfing's big. Uh, I found I'm now searching like eBay for books, less like Amazon for books. You know, there's like been a transition to that. But that's just because just the rabbit hole chasing is like something I very much do for better and worse is I just like watching them do that kind of stuff. Like the EMJ thing is very fun because he's doing historical criticism. So dealing with the Enlightenment, dealing with figures such as Mary Wollstonecraft, Shelley, Godwin, like even the parts I thought were fascinating were. American Revolution's going on shortly after, if I'm right. But the amount of like the little bit of overlap between Godwin and uh, Wollstonecraft that I had with like Aaron Burr, who did the-
1: Yeah, it's a great, it's a great, because uh, the, the, the American Revolution happened first. The French first, said, hey, sorry. that's yeah. awesome. Right. And then, but they did it totally wrong. <laughs> yes. And it's <laughs> and interesting. It's interesting, yeah. Yeah,
0: I had actually, I included it into an ass dug at one point of like, talk about sort of there seems to be some overlap you know there's there were american characters benjamin franklin that were who may have been like more prone to go along with something that was going on in france yeah the bloodbath they weren't you know but you know luckily god's kindness that worked out differently here uh so anyway there's things like that and then ultimately what i love about it i love so right now i'm currently squished in an office with (laughs) brian cole brian and Forrest. But one good thing is there's a lot of conversation, and generally it's about things such as this sounds very hoity-toity, but it is sort of us just figuring out stuff. But and by mm-hmm. that I just mean like I would say, I would you could call it just trying to be wise. And there's always like conflicting ideals, or there's someone coming over the top this way, or yeah, or what have you. But I enjoy convers- I enjoy trying to figure out like trying to see better. Right. That's that's, that's the argument. That's the
1: argument for literature. It's what we do. Um, You don't just get the right idea about life from living it. (laughs) In fact, fact, you
0: could get the wrong really tremendously (laughs) bad idea. And so when, you know, uh, the reasons, you know, I'm I'm really down a frost thing right now or. um,
1: Yeah. One thing you can and call listeners may not know about Jake. (laughs)
0: You're is right.
1: is that he doesn't like to read a book on someone and then move on to the next person?
0: No, I need to figure it
1: out. He, he likes to, like to read around. everything they've read. Need or to get written, around. Sorry, it. yeah, everything they've written. If you can get to secondary literature, it's super nice. Multiple biographies. So, I tend, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: What, <laughs> oh, here what? we go. <laughs> if you know you're looking for author books on books, how many times? Uh, I'm not looking for a number, but what? motivates you to just chuck one <laughs> like who what are the marks of like this is not going well you don't actually understand this or what if you don't if you don't think they're doing it well why would you you know continue coming that's a good that question
0: session? and i especially think in light of teaching freshmen uh so i recently just got the wounded surgeon which is a quote from a t.s Eliot poem but it's about the confessionalists in the 20th century confessional poets To people like Robert Lowell, Sylvia Plath is maybe have, she's probably the brightest burning star of that group. And I'm reading it by a guy named Adam Kirsch, and he loves them. And I, just reading the introduction, (laughs) just reading the introduction, I actually got very excited because it's going to be something that I can interact with in the future. Because I know I disagree not only with the author about how he feels about them, I have many, I would have many complaints about the confessional world of poetry. And I think that they're, to some degree at fault for why poetry, like, why, uh. yeah, what, what I thought of poetry all along. So for, so to that point, you know, there's, I'm actually very excited about this book because this person really likes confessionalists. He's going to give them their best, put them in the best light that he can because he likes them a lot. Uh. So anyway, there's, that's probably, I would never recommend it though, maybe to people because why would I, you know, but like I said, the Frankenstein thing came along and threw a weird, Half pulled through the hedge backwards.
1: Yeah, you started down a rabbit hole there with getting. We we needed a. We wanted. Well, you can actually find Jake's Worldview Guide for Frankenstein in Canon Plus right now. Yeah. Um, and that started out because we look to try and add awesome introductions, short literary criticism, although we don't call it that. Right. <laughs> because because no one no right. one out of their mind. You know, you don't go looking for literary criticism. Tough sell to moms. Yeah, exactly. I mean, but you do go looking for. Oh, I've always wondered. Guy. This. Yes. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. an instructor. Yeah. Right. So anyway, those are just, so there are ways in which
0: I think I'm very weird, but there is there is a, sen- a sense that I think all three of us share that we would want to share with others that may not be literarily inclined. But as people of the word, as you were saying earlier, people, you're Christians and you have to have certain characteristics to in order to live a life of love. And I think literary criticism is one great like gym session of that, where you have to take someone on their own words, their own account, be honest about them, and, and hopefully learn either a lot of good things, or maybe it's more of a Monsters from the id thing where you're saying, like, uh, this is all very bad, but it is at least helping me see other bad things way more clearly than I could before. Which I think that's the goal. That's awesome. We'll Sight. stand by that. Sight. 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 Sign. B K, do you have any recommends? Anything that you think if, if, for non literary minded people who have made it this far, which credit to them? <laughs> what would you recommend to them?
1: Ren already said Ward, so you can't say Ward. You can't say I Ward. Can't say word. Okay, so this is gonna say this is the dark side of being an editor. Uh-oh. Um, it, there's a there's a thirty second thirty
0: second thirty second <laughs> right.
1: There's a quote that editors can talk about anything for five minutes and nothing for longer than that meaning that we're very shallow people because we don't, I don't deep dive. uh, (laughs) Speaking of the one deep dive Brian did do in the last year was basically on his own profession. On my own profession, yeah.
0: And it was very Uh, dark as he realized maybe editors aren't as important
1: in history as they seem to be today. Yeah, we'll have to have a whole conversation. Sorry, everyone. (laughs) Go ahead, Brian. Continue down. Uh, Yeah, you know, I mean, I think you can't can't go wrong with reading uh, well, okay. Can I recommend Flannery O'Connor's Mysteries? What is it called? Mystery and Manners. Mystery and Manners. Yeah. I thought. Kind of her own own work. Yeah. A little bit. Yeah. Basically, an author basically doing literary criticism on why they do fiction the way they do. It's good. And I thought it was also remarkably applicable and remarkably, um, and just very readable. So, especially if you've ever heard of Flannery O'Connor short story and thought that was crazy. Yeah. um, I'd recommend that one big time.
0: She's really great. Uh, You will, you know, she is a great. Uh, destroyer of sentimentality yes so everybody should have a dose of that maybe don't drink the entire bottle of flannery but you should have a good swig yeah awesome okay well I, pr- I recommend everything that we have on Canon Plus and the Worldview guides are also very good they're quick quick little essays about all of most of the classics we've finished so yeah not all of them are on Canon Plus but those are at canonpress.com yep along with the Lightheart titles I really enjoy Lightheart on literature he's probably one of the very first that i learned from yeah so joe joe assigned a lot of lightheart for me and ren back in the day and so i i have an affection for his literary stuff and you're a big harold bloom, fl- bloom fan. <laughs> okay <laughs> not harold bloom <laughs> me and c.s lewis both feel very <laughs> powerfully about harold bloom and we'll we'll leave it at that Rand, anything else
2: uh no okay
1: Thanks for having us on, Jacob. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks, Brian.